0: Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast dedicated to ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. This week's episode, The Point of Painting, talks about that most universal of human traits, drawing on the walls, and on pots, and on wood and leather and fabric, and, well, you get the idea. If you sit a very young child down at a table, give her a piece of paper and some crayons, and then leave that child alone for any length of time, it is pretty much inevitable that you are going to end up with scribbles, everywhere. On her body, on the table, on the chair. Some of it might even be on the paper, and quite a bit of it will probably end up on the walls. People love to play with pigment, and it's been like that from the very beginning. Of course, we don't have any examples of the earliest painting. If you think about it, most painting that we see today is done on stuff that doesn't last very long. Skin, paper, fabric, even wood, it doesn't really last all that long unless it's been very carefully protected. As a result, it's kind of a miracle that the earliest paintings that we have date to about 35,000 to 40,000 years ago. Of course, those paintings exist in very carefully protected areas. They exist in caves. Often these paintings are simple a handprint that says, I was here, made by putting your hand on the wall and then blowing pigment at it so that you have this uh, outline of your hand left there. Sometimes it'll be regularly spaced dots that look like a count of something, although what that something might be is up for grabs. The most spectacular cave paintings, however, explode into full-room depictions of horses, bulls, rhinoceri, antelope, and other local animals that people thought were important. I don't know if there are any cave paintings of squirrels or rabbits, like the ones that show up every morning to eat breakfast in my yard. That would be interesting to find out. What were these earliest paintings for? Well, there is one fundamental assumption that we make when we start studying prehistoric art, which means, of course, art that was made before people started leaving written records, therefore pre-history. That assumption is that people are fundamentally and basically the same. We all share the same basic DNA. We all share certain physicals, psychological and social needs, and so even though we are all going to express those needs and fill those needs in different ways, I mean look at the many ways that culture exists around the world, we can still communicate and understand each other, however, if we're willing to put in the effort. Because of that, one of the most important tools that we have as art historians is our imagination. I call this the what-if game and I've been playing it since I was a kid. So, what if I was living way, way back, 40,000 years ago in Europe. Well, the whole world was different then. It was colder, for one thing. Europe was covered in forests. The sea level was higher in some places, lower in others. So that's the geographic setting. Now, I would have been born to a very young mother, probably between the ages of 12 and 18, maybe 20, or into her 25s, maybe. Uh, I could expect to live if I was lucky, into my 40s. But most of my companions and friends and people that I know would not live past 25, thanks to animal death, illness death, or childbirth. Now, for women, guess what's the most likely cause of death? Yeah, childbirth. Cave lions were pretty common. They hunted the same game I did, mostly deer. And they lived in the same places I wanted to live, caves which are nice and dry and comfortable. Uh, Interestingly enough, we don't see a whole lot of bears, right? There's cave lions. Herds of bison thundered across the grasslands, and there were herds of horses, too. Uh, Now note all of the information that I need in order to be able to begin this little what-if game. I need archaeology, anthropology, geology, and climate science, but wait, there's more. Yeah we're not done yet, we still also need astronomy. Because it's interesting to note that one of the earliest and first constellations was actually Taurus the bull. It's a springtime constellation and once upon a time, about 40,000 years ago, it signaled the spring equinox. Leo and Scorpio, by the way, are the other two original constellations that we get from Sumeria, which is where our oldest records of astronomy come from. Now I can imagine Taurus being significant because of the herds of bison that would have roamed across the steppes of Eurasia the same way they roamed across the plains of North America until the migration westward. They must have been hugely important to the cultures of many people in Eurasia the same way as they were to the Native American populations in, Northern, in North America. Now, what would drive me to paint images of these great animals on the walls of caves? Caves that in some cases are really difficult to access. In order to get to the Chauvet Caves, for example, I would have to, well, okay, first I'd have to overcome my claustrophobia, and good luck with that, but let's say I don't mind being squished into small dark spaces. So I would have to carry a torch with me because it's dark in there. I would have to be carrying my pigment with me, because good luck at finding it there. And then I would have to be willing to make the trek down through a series of caverns that are connected by rather narrow passages in some cases. I don't know about you, but that practically screams ritual at me. Although we cannot be absolutely certain without a babblefish and a TARDIS or maybe a space-time wormhole, our reconstruction of the Paleolithic world through the what-if game leads us to the conclusion that wall paintings are likely ritualistic, meant possibly to teach hunting techniques, pray for fertility, or maybe even illustrate a mythology that we no longer know. Even cave paintings that are easy to access, that hunters, for example, always knew about up until people started getting interesting and studying these kinds of things, uh, probably had similar functions once upon a time. After all, what kind of images do you put on the walls of your home or your office? Do you put up places you want to go, people you admire, things that that remind you of family, things that inspire a certain emotion, reminders of things you were supposed to do? Objects of protection? Maybe devotion? The drive to visually remind ourselves of important stories, goals, or ideas remains a constant thread throughout all the history of painting, no matter what our culture is, what our own stories are, or what techniques and materials we use to tell those stories. Now, I'm not going to talk much about different styles of painting that's more fun when we're actually looking at paintings, but I can certainly talk to you about the different techniques and materials that artists use for painting. Painting actually falls into just a few categories because, let's face it, there are only so many ways to put color on a surface. The cave paintings used colors from the earth. If you've ever gardened in really clayey soil after a rainstorm, you know I hope, that once that clay gets into your clothes, your clothes will forever after be stained red. Ochre is really sticky, and it's permanent. Charcoal on the other hand is pretty good at making everything black. Uh, Just ask anybody who has doodled around with charcoal sticks after making s'mores. And if you haven't made s'mores, you poor child. Anyway, back to charcoal, it doesn't stick. It actually wipes off really easily. So you're going to need some help if you want to use charcoal as a painting mechanism. Now this is where the composition of paint comes in. What differentiates clay or ochre from charcoal? Well, paint requires three things. The color or the pigment, the carrier, and the binder. Now pigment, the thing that gives paint its color, uh, is Oh, it can be just about anything. I don't know what you have in your kitchen cupboard, but there are a lot of spices that are really good at coloring things. Turmeric is one of my personal favorites. It turns everything yellow. Everything yellow. Uh, Red cabbage is another one. If you put red cabbage into a stew, you will end up with purple food. Everything will be purple. Now, put turmeric-flavored rice and red cabbage stew together, and you have my high school colors. Yay! Uh, Of course, if you cook them together, that ends up giving you a really icky brownish gray. I don't advise trying to eat that. It tastes okay, but man, it looks nasty. Yes, I play with colors in my food, and on my clothes, and on my skin. And um, I hope that maybe you do too. That would be nice. Of course, some pigments are more, per- are more permanent than others. Plant-based pigments, like turmeric, uh, are, the least ter- uh, are the least permanent. The really permanent pigments are made from minerals or from semi-precious stones. Blue, for example, was often derived from lapis lazuli. Red ochre gets its color from iron oxide or rust, and yellow ochre from iron oxyhydroxide. Now this is one reason we know as much as we do about the symbols and styles and stories of ancient societies. Although most pigments are furtive, which means they don't last all that long, a lot of clay of various colors got used to make pots and vases and dishes and cups. Pots and vases and dishes and cups were sometimes decorated with stories that people valued highly, and you see where I'm going with this? We've got these really permanent pigments that are being used to make really permanent objects. And then those objects, particularly if they're really good, often get placed in funerary contexts. In other words, they get used for tombs. Tombs are fantastic protected environments. And so even when the pots break for whatever reason, the pieces are all still there and we can reconstruct them. Now, people do still want paintings on their walls and various shades of ochre and clay get boring real fast. If you have a large wall that you want to color and you want more options, one of the most common solutions, even if it's not necessarily the easiest, is fresco. In order to make fresco, you need plaster, water, and pigment, preferably something mineral-based. Remember, you want it to stick around for a while. Wow, that was a bad pun. Now, this is how it works. Uh, First, you're going to mix water and pigment together and make a kind of a paint sludge, Well, watercolor out of that. Then you're going to slather a nice smooth patch of plaster on your wall and paint it with your colored water, your watercolors, right, while the plaster is still wet. As the plaster dries, the pigment is going to be sucked into the space between the plaster molecules, effectively dyeing the plaster the color of your paint. And there you have a nice permanent wall painting. When we do excavations, uh, then we often have fragments of frescoes that will be lying around on the ground, and of course, they're still good. They're still bright and colorful, uh, and you can reconstruct the paintings that they came from precisely because of this. If it's a mineral-based pigment, and it's stuck in plaster, it's not going anywhere. However, not all paintings are permanently affixed to walls. Sometimes, you want a painting that can be carried around with you say, on a plank of wood. That means getting a little more creative. One way to get color to stick to a surface like wood is to mix pigment with wax. Yep, crayons have been around for a very long time, one way or another. We call this kind of painting encaustic. You melt wax, add pigment, spread on whatever surface, and you're done. Wax is actually quite liqueous when it's really hot, as anybody knows who's tried to make candles, and it seeps into every nook and cranny. Then it gets sticky and hard when it dries. Uh, think candles and getting candle drippings on your carpet, which is a bear to get out. This is what a lot of uh, this encaustic is what a lot of icons are made out of, and uh, many early paintings from Egypt and Sumeria as well. However there are problems with wax not only do you have to work with it hot in order to get that nice smooth surface um, you also have to worry about getting it everywhere else and then, of course if the temperature gets really hot then the wax might melt and yada 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 oil is a really great alternative to wax in some ways but it's not always easy to get a hold of and oh my word it takes forever to dry Oil didn't really become popular in Europe until the Renaissance, when some artists decided they really liked the ability to futz around with little tiny details forever and ever, making their paintings look as naturalistic as humanly possible. Most of the time, at least historically, artists and patrons have been moderately impatient, so they don't want to wait until the oil dries forever and ever and ever, and they may not be willing to deal with the complexities of wax. So let's think about something that will uh, be fluid when it's wet, stick to the surface when it dries, not take forever or require special equipment like fire, uh, and won't take a year and a day to dry. So water, easy, cheap. So there's our carrier. There's the thing that makes everything fluid. For a binder, well, really, it's glue. That's, That's what you need. So whatever you decide to make glue out of, eggs and milk make a really nice glues for paint. Uh, So, water, eggs or milk, and pigment. And then and there you have tempera paint, right? which goes on nice and sticks to the wall, at least good enough for what most people want. Acrylic painting, by the way, is pretty new on the scene. It was invented in the 1940s and takes advantage of the properties of plastic. It's colorful enough to be uh, oil-like in some senses, right? So you get that nice, bright, deep color. But it has some of the blendability and um, applying ability of watercolor. So it kind of blends the two constructs. Now, uh, just as an aside, if you're wondering why old paintings have this really beautiful luster to them, when you go to a museum and take a look at them. And you can't seem to find that same shine in paintings today. If you're wondering why that is, well, there's a reason for that. The most popular pigment for white, which is one of those really important colors in painting, was once upon a time, not too long ago, lead. Lead is absolutely beautiful and glowy and marvelous and poisonous and radioactive. So uh, it's illegal. And now many people use titanium dioxide instead. It's safer, but it doesn't have that same luster or shine. Well, well, sometimes at least health trumps aesthetics. Whatever we paint with, the images and colors that we use say a lot about who we are, how we see the world, and what we think is important. Now here's something to think about. Writing. What is writing, anyway? The placement of contrasting color onto a surface in specific patterns and symbols that have meaning for those who have been clued into the secret. Sound a little bit like those wall paintings? Like the wall paintings we saw in the caves that are all over the place? Yeah! There are written languages that started off as codes that only initiates could understand, but also pictograms that anyone could recognize. These are all visual images that are used to communicate. Just because some people use easy-to-read illustrations of the natural world and some people use signs and symbols that require years of education to understand doesn't make either form of communication better or worse, just different, right? And, of course, all of it is a form of painting. So it's something to think about the next time you have to jot down a note or print something out or send a text. You paint every single day. Whether or not it's art, well, that's up to you. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast dedicated to ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening.